ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Introducing Capital Group's new actively managed ETFs. A new suite of ETFs brought to you by a company with a proven track record of long-term results, a 90-year history of navigating ups and downs, and everything behind it. Give your portfolio active management at the core. Explore what's behind our new active ETFs at capitalgroup.com ETFs. American Funds Distributors, Inc., member FINRA. Now it's time for ETF Prime where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, this week it's a best of ETF Prime, which I haven't done one of these in a while. So I'm going to revisit some of my favorite conversations this year. And of course, there's been no shortage of interesting ETF stories so far in 2022, which is somewhat just a reflection of the broader market, right? It feels like things have completely flipped from 2020 and in 2021. We no longer have a supportive Fed and there are no longer government stimulus checks going out the door. Uh, unfortunately, we now have a war in Ukraine, uh, continued supply chain issues, COVID still hanging around. There's a lot going on. And so I've gone back and selected some of my favorite conversations from over these past five months or so. And I want to start with Cambria's Meb Faber, who joined me right out of the shoot the first week of January. And I've got to tell you, I think everyone knows I'm not real big on uh, market predictions. Nobody has a crystal ball, including me. But I'm actually starting to wonder if maybe Meb does, because he delivered some thoughts on the markets that are looking rather uh, prescient right now. So let's start there with Meb previewing the markets back in January. Well, let me tell you, it may look calm on the surface, and it may feel calm. The S&P, another monster year in 2021. Um, but there's, there seems to be a lot of churn underneath the surface. And let me explain. We're starting 2022 at one of the highest valuations ever. So in the U.S., the market cap weighted S&P, if you look at um, the 10-year P ratio, it's sitting at 40. That's only happened twice in history, 1999 and 2000. Uh, older investors will remember those years quite uh, burned into their memory. And we talked on Twitter and we looked globally. We said, um, what happens historically when you have those high valuations? And historically speaking, uh, and most people think this has only happened in one or two countries, but it's happened in dozens. The historical future returns for the next decade, real returns are zero on average. Now, 
people always say, well, it could be different with the U.S. And I say, well, you know, there's been about 50 times this has happened in history. About half of those are Japan, if I recall. You know how many of those had even average returns, meaning 6% average real returns for the next decade? And the answer is zero. So the starting point for the U.S. is poor. Everyone knows that, like you alluded to, and everyone's known that for the last couple of years. Here's the difference. In 2020, uh, the Star Wars fans will say there's been a, there was a disturbance in the force, and you can link it to either uh, the pandemic bottom, interest rates bottom, or the election, but it's, it happened somewhere in that period. Or if you go back 120 years, 2020 was the worst year ever. Excuse me. Um, if you go back 120 years and you look at value, cheap versus expensive stocks within the U.S. market, the worst year ever was 1999. That was followed by the best year ever in 2000 after the bubble popped. That was until 2020. 2020 was worse than 1999 for value stocks. However, we then, we then saw this disturbance in the force where value stocks crushed it last year. You know, our shareholder yield suite, um, the U.S. fund was up almost 50% last year. Now, the difference is the really expensive stuff hasn't imploded yet. It started to. A lot of the really expensive growth names have come off. But if we remember back to the late 90s, that's a multi-year process. And so the market cap weighted hasn't rolled over yet. When that does, I think that's when you'll see eventually see the carnage. Now, the challenge is um, we did a, a, a tweet this morning quoting old F. Scott Fitzgerald and said, you know, if you know me long enough, I'm a trend and value guy. And going back long enough, he's like, you know, the test of a first-rate intelligence is can you hold two opposing views in your head and essentially not go insane. And so the trend is up, and valuations are outrageously high. Um, and that feels like conflict, but it's not. Man, that was a long-winded answer <laughs> to your question of what's going to happen with foreign. Well, foreign, the same thing happened last year. Value stocks did great in foreign developed. They beat the market cap index. Emerging market value did great. It beat the index as well. A lot of that had to do with China. The bigger question is when do the foreign indices, which are much cheaper than the U.S., start to outperform the U.S., which historically has been a coin flip. Your guess is as good as mine, but I think 2022 has got a pretty good chance. All right, so a ton to unpack there. And I guess let me first say, Look, I think we both agree valuations are poor short-term market timing tools, right? But over the longer term, I think it obviously makes sense to pay attention to valuations. And you just referenced the valuations in the U.S. currently. The one thing I'm curious about, though, is we all know the narrative of the Fed supporting financial markets, right? They've kept rates pinned down. They forced investors to take risk, punch a uh, pumped a bunch of liquidity into the system. And so even if valuations are on the higher end, Aren't investors betting against the Fed if they pay attention to those valuations right now and, say, lighten up on U.S. stocks? I mean, that hasn't been a great bet over the past several years. So how do you how do you handle that? Or does it go back to what you're saying? You stay with a trend until it doesn't work anymore. I just so think it's tough three, for advisors. There's three things in this for the advisors listening and, and what you can do. Um, the first is, historically speaking, and you can look on my Twitter for this, listeners, we posted a chart of it. Um, we say the next decade should have zero real returns. Most of the carnage actually happens 
in the first three to five years. Um, and you can look at sort of the kink in the chart. So historically speaking, when you're at a P ratio above 40, which is bubble territory, uh, historically the carnage comes soon. It may not be next month. It may, but it, it's very likely in the next couple of years. Um, so be aware. Second is um, certainly you could use trend as a timing indicator. You know, my most of our early work and a lot of our foundational work uh, at our firm on allocation strategies uh, involves trend, and our flagship Trinity portfolios are half trend. So uh, a lot of the trend currently is showing a huge overweight to real assets. Uh, if you look at our, our global momentum ETF, it's stock full of commodities and real estate and, and equities, too. No bonds yet. Um, but I do want to touch on one thing, which I think uh, is a misconception. Now, I'm pretty anti-consensus here. We did an old blog post called um, Stocks Are Allowed to Be Expensive Since Bond Yields Are Low, dot, 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 right? And what we went through is we kind of went through this exercise of looking at historically you know, do stocks perform well when bond yields are low? And the answer to that is yes. But that has historically been entirely because when bond yields were low, historically, stock valuations were also low. And so if you look at all the other sort of coincident economic indicators of why bond yields were low, it's usually because the economy was doing poor, trailing stock returns were terrible, you had high inflation, just everything was yuck. Right. So it set the stage for a bull market. That's not what we have now. Right. And so if you look at historically speaking, um, the setup is not the same. Right. That the setup was entirely because you were buying stocks at a P.E. ratio of 12, not 40. So I think a lot of people are going to have this false sense of security as interest rates are cranking up right now uh, in the U.S. uh, with inflation. I mean, who knows what it is, but certainly four, five, six percent. Historically, PE ratios fall off a cliff above four or five percent, right? They start to slide at, at three, four, and then above that, uh, we're looking at low teens, certainly not 40. So, what's an advisor to do? Certainly uh, move away from the U.S. If you're in the U.S., move away from market cap. Whatever you do, move away from market cap weighted in the U.S. Uh, you can certainly move to foreign. You have dividend yields of 4 or 5% in a lot of these foreign value indices in the U.S. We're the second lowest dividend yield ever outside the late 90s. Uh, and then, of course, you can think about um, tactical moves like tail risk and other ideas as well. But um, there's a lot of things people can do. The worst thing you can do is hang out in good old uh, market cap weighted 60-40. So that was a portion of my conversation with Meb Faber, co-founder and CIO at Cambria Investment Management, who pretty much nailed everything we've seen so far this year and tossed in a few Star Wars references for good measure. And we actually continued by talking more about the relative attractiveness of international stocks, uh, which are starting to show some outperformance this year versus the uh, U.S. We'll see if that holds. Now, speaking of international stocks, One area that appeared cheaply valued coming into the year, didn't matter, Russia and Russian stocks. Now, of course, uh, not many were predicting a a full-fledged war to break out in Ukraine. But in any event, once that happened, Russian stocks tanked. And we saw a truly unprecedented situation where ETFs offering exposure to Russian stocks, they just stopped trading. 
These products were halted by the exchanges. I was joined in March, right after that happened, by Vetify's Dave Nodig to walk through this. And it's still early, but I would say this is probably my ETF story of the year at this point. And certainly nobody better to dive into the details around this than Dave. So following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we saw really most of the world respond with pretty aggressive economic sanctions. And we're seeing that those continue even into today. That obviously put a ton of pressure on Russia and the ruble. And I think in response to that, probably sort of in retaliation as well, Russia shut down the Moscow Stock Exchange, and they also banned the selling of stocks by foreign investors and other securities as well. So let's just start there. Again, before we get into the ETFs themselves, I want to properly set the table. So just explain what happened with Russian stocks and securities. Yeah, so you know we've seen this a few times, but it is it's worth pointing out that this is pretty untested territory, right? So there really isn't a clear playbook. The actual sort of order of events was post invasion, the central bank which controls the Moscow Stock Exchange in in Russia. Um, first, the first thing they did was they instructed the exchange not to accept sell orders from foreign brokers. So that that's that we would consider that a capital control measure, mm-hmm. uh, and that's not unheard of. There are, there are rules around how foreign investors work in Brazil. You have to pay taxes to to put sales through. So like this isn't completely unheard of. Very quickly after that, they shut the market and it hasn't reopened since. So the last sort of actual outward expression from like whether or not foreign ownership of Gazprom was going to be allowed, or honored, I should say, uh, was that they weren't going to be taking sell orders, then they closed the market. And now we're in this limbo. Uh, and as Jason Zweig has sort of pointed out, the last time uh, <laughs> last time Russia closed its stock market was in 1917, and it didn't open for quite a few decades. So uh, this is really untested territory. Yeah, I saw a quote from Demetrius uh, Melis, who is global head of index research for MSCI, and he told Barron's, I just thought this was a, a really good, simple explainer. He said, quote, We haven't seen this level of rapid deterioration across the board. For an equity market to function and invest, you need a stock market to be open, currency to be convertible, and counterparties on the ground. None of the three hold right now. I I just thought that was a really good way to explain what's going on. Yeah, and I would actually, I, I think that's not even severe enough, to be honest. I think that there's a fourth one which overrides all of those, which is whether or not Russia intends to continue to honor international property rights, right? Like, uh, right, because when we look back at examples where things like this have happened before, you really have to look at things like Cuba, right, or, or Iran in the 70s, right, where in those cases, it's not that those stock markets didn't reopen. Those companies ceased to exist. They were nationalized. And, and I'm, I, I, this is a bit of an outlier belief, but I know Jason Zweigert, the journal, and I are, are sort of anchoring this belief system that we actually think the only way out may be for Russia to nationalize some of these companies, thereby obviating all of this foreign interest. Well, and you mentioned the, the Russian central bank. I mean, really, that's the backdrop to all of this in that they're trying to protect the ruble as well here, right? They don't want a bunch of selling. I mean, they're going to have a difficult time protecting that currency here, at least in the short term. But I think, you know, that that's a big aspect here. Um, so, okay, Dave, w- with all of that, let's get to the ETF part of the story. And uh, again, there are several angles here, but let's start with the Russian ETFs themselves, the individual country ETFs. The two most popular 
are the Vanek Russia ETF, ticker RSX, and the iShares MSCI Russia ETF, ticker ERUS. There's also the Franklin FTSE Russia ETF, ticker FLRU. And then Vanek, uh, they have a, a small cap version as well, RSXJ. So right. these, these all suspended creations earlier last week. They then actually traded at massive premiums, which I, I, I want to talk about that in particular. But uh, then we saw on Friday the New York Stock Exchange halted trading in, in ERUS and FLRU. Uh, and then SIBO later did the same on the two Vanek ETFs. So, so, again, let's take this in pieces just to make sure everyone understands exactly what happened here. Explain the chain of events last week, starting with the suspension of creations. Sure. So, so in order for creations to happen, uh, authorized participants need to be able to put together the basket of securities that you would then deliver in return for those newly created shares of something like an RSX or an ERUS. Um, once you can no longer buy those securities to put in the basket, it really becomes functionally impossible to actually put that basket together. Now, in, in the past, we had some cases where there were edges around this. So, for instance, during the Arab Spring in 2010, uh, when EGPT sort of it went through a very similar thing, there were the local exchange was closed, I think, for 26 days in the end. The London GDRs continued to trade. EGPT owned primarily a lot of those GDRs. And so they were able to keep creations open for a long time by sort of modifying the basket to what was available. Once, the, once London suspended the GDRs from trading, which was last Thursday, it literally became impossible to make new shares. When you can't make new shares and anybody wants to buy, it's just like a closed-end fund. So, you know, more buyers than sellers. No way to arbitrage it back to, quote-unquote, fair value. So, of course, it shows up as a premium. With the enormous phrase premium and discount is always relative to what. And in this case, the what would be the last traded price of, say, Gazprom or Luke Oil. Uh, and since those things haven't traded for quite some time now, it's a little ridiculous to say that it's trading at a premium. It's trading at a price relative to a weeks ago evaluation. I, I want to come back to that point real quick. The GDRs that you mentioned trading in London, I don't, I don't want to get completely sidetracked here. Can you, you, can you just explain those? What, what does that mean? Yeah, so... Yeah, so GDRs, or when they're listed on NYSE, they're called ADRs for American Depository Receipts. They're really quite simple in structure, right? So a GDR, a major bank in London, strikes an agreement, literally just a contracted agreement, say, with Luke Oil. Luke Oil deposits a bunch of shares in that bank's account. That bank then issues certificates based on usually some multiple, usually two or ten number of shares that each certificate represents. And then those certificates just trade like stocks. They're not stocks. They don't have voting rights. Um, there are various sort of nuances to why they are different. The actual owner of record is the bank that listed the GDR. So once that breakdown happens between, say, Luke Oil's Treasury and the bank issuing the GDR, that GDR no longer makes a lot of sense either. Because remember, there's still things like dividend payments that have to be made. And all of the rails by which those things get done are now frozen, right? So, so G, most GDRs around the world trade either in dollars or euros. Most of the Russian ones traded in U.S. dollars. So in order, for instance, the coupon or the dividend payment from a company to end up in the hands of the GDR holder, you have to be able to go through foreign exchange. That's frozen right now, too, right? Because you're not doing that at the Central Bank in Russia. Okay, so all of these ETFs, they halted creations. Then they traded at massive premiums. Let's come back to that now. So, uh, again, before trading was halted in these ETFs, all of them were trading at, at premiums. How much price discovery do you think was occurring? Because 
Look, ETFs are always touted as price discovery vehicles when the underlying markets freeze up, right? We saw that with uh, bond ETFs in March of 2020. I always think about the uh, Greece and Egypt ETF several years ago. What sort of price discovery do you think was actually occurring in these Russia ETFs? Well, certainly it's the only price discovery that was happening, right? So so it, it was the price discovery for Russian stocks. Now, what did those prices represent? You obviously cannot say that they represented some sort of fundamental valuation of Luke Oil's holdings, right, or Gazprom's holdings. What you were actually getting was a best-case kind of auction on the future of these companies, mm-hmm. um, in, in which one of the potential outcomes had just become not a tail risk but a central tendency risk, which is maybe nothing from a foreign investor's perspective, right? So zero became a reasonable bound for the value, because if they obviate property rights, then the value truly is. Um, so that, it changed the nature of what we were evaluating in that price, but it was the price discovery. And so seeing a trade at quote-unquote premiums, again, remember what it really was doing was trading up from its last printed price, right? So it's not really that it was trading at a premium, it was simply up from its last price, that doesn't strike me as an unreasonable thing for it to have traded to, given the chaos that we were seeing and the number of players in the street that are lo- always looking for these arbitrage sort of special situations opportunities. So I am quite certain somewhere there are hedge funds and active managers that loaded up on the underlying GDRs and the underlying Russian stocks as, as long as they could until they could no longer get access. And now the question is, will those folks be rewarded by these markets eventually opening uh, and rewarding the investors that held on, or will they essentially have to mark all that down to zero? Yeah, in terms of the price that these were trading at, I mean, in my opinion, you do have investors meeting on an exchange and determining a price. So to to me, that provides some insight or a window into what investors think the underlying securities are worth. Uh, I I think that's worth pointing out. And I I also just want to, I always like coming back to the basics. When we said these were trading at a premium, so these these were the ETF shares, the actual prices that were being traded back and forth on an exchange. The premium was from the net asset value of the underlying securities in these ETFs, which, of course, that was stale because the, the underlying markets were closed. One question I did have for you on that, though, the, uh, the, the, the currency movement. So were any of these NAVs actually changing? So I know the securities themselves yes. weren't changing, but what about the yes. currency movement? Yeah, particularly if you were looking at ERUS, right? And one of the great things, go to the iShares website, you can pull down the pricing sheet for every ETF. You can actually go to, for instance, the ERUS webpage and pull up every day's Excel spreadsheet that shows you the price that went into the NAV and the currency exchange that went into that NAV. So up until these things basically all got marked to zero, um, they were still marked at the last trading price in MOEX. So you could see, I remember looking at this a couple of days ago, uh, you could see that, uh, for instance, Gazprom was still showing an indicated dollar price of like $2.90, despite the fact that the GDR was trading at an implied price of like 19 Right, So there was this disconnect because there was this marked price that was only being adjusted by the movement we saw in the ruble, right? Because it was still saying it was still the same number of rubles right. for day after day after day, but the ruble was going through the roof. I haven't mentioned performance yet, uh, but I should note that before trading uh, was halted in RSX and uh, in ERUS, those were both down around 80% this year. I think that's important for us yeah. to, to, to note. Okay, so look, uh, you may have seen this. I tweeted this out on Friday. I, I've got to be honest. I was actually a little bit disappointed that trading was halted in these ETFs because 
I always like to talk about how compared to mutual funds, which obviously can gate redemptions, ETFs at least offer investors the ability to get out, right? They they allow investors to sell in these situations. But that's not happening here. Do you think that's any sort of black eye for ETFs? I know this is an unprecedented situation. We've thrown that word around a lot, by the way, over the past couple of years. But, uh, you know, I've always thought that ETFs, they offer that exit ramp. They, they allow you to sell in these environments when the underlying markets freeze up. Do you think this is any sort of black eye? I don't think it's a black eye. I think that there are judgment calls that have to be made here. Remember, it's the exchange that makes this call about right. whether any given security on their exchange can be traded effectively, right? That can be traded in a way that is rational and orderly. And, you know, yeah, so NYSE made the call in the morning and SIBO made the call in the afternoon. The NYSE products were trading under, underlying the the, the SIBO products were trading GDRs. So there's, there's, it's a little bit apples and oranges here. So I don't actually think that we should be throwing mud on one or the other for either staying open or closing before the other. Um, you know, once you really have no underlying exchanges available whatsoever, I think it's actually quite reasonable for the exchanges to say, look, the risk of leaving these things open for trading is that people are going to think these are the live Russian markets, right? I think there's a very real risk that if RSX was trading right now today with oil, you know, going up into the hundreds and nickel at $100,000, the trading in RSX wouldn't be rational right now, right? It would be pure speculation. And I worry, actually, that people would get, you know, they would see something on the screen that RSX traded up 25% or down and imply something about what's really going on here. And that would be specious, right? That, that would not be true. It would simply be uh, speculators moving capital around. So that was Dave Nodig, financial futurist at Vetify. Of course, that's the recently rebranded Vetify, uh, previously ETF Trends and ETF Database, along with uh, Alarian and S-Network Global Indexes. But Dave went on to discuss what might happen next with these ETFs, especially in the unlikely event the Russian stock market does come back online and some of these Russian stocks end up having value. It's a an interesting situation. And I actually saw last week that BlackRock is closing the Russia ETF trading over in Europe, though it's still not entirely clear to me what happens with the underlying securities if they uh, do end up having value at some point. But this whole story is still one to watch moving forward. Digital assets applications, technology, and use cases have exploded in recent years. Digital assets miners have emerged as a crucial part of this ecosystem and play a critical role in the validating and processing of blockchain transactions. Consider the Vanek Digital Assets Mining ETF, ticker DAM, when positioning your portfolio to include digital assets mining companies. Investing involves substantial risk and high volatility, including possible loss of principal. An investor should consider the fund's objective risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. To obtain a perspective, Call 800-826-2333 or visit vanek.com. Please read the prospectus carefully before investing. All right, another big ETF story this year, and it's possible this could become the ETF story of the year. Let's hope not. I don't think that'd be a a good thing. But it's this FINRA proposal on quote-unquote complex ETFs and mutual funds. And I was joined by Vetify's Laura Krigger, right after the exchange conference in uh, April. And I'm not going to spend any time setting this up. We get right into all of the details pretty quickly here. So without further ado, here's Laura and I discussing this FINRA proposal. Um, so look, as it turns out, one of the hottest topics at exchange was actually this FINRA notice that was issued in March. Uh, formally, this is FINRA notice 
22-08. And this has to do with, quote, unquote, complex ETFs and mutual funds. And, and I'll let you get into this. But in a nutshell, this is a proposal that would require brokerages to test investors before allowing them to access certain products. Now, of course, FINRA is the regulatory body overseeing brokerages. And from my perspective, I, I could be wrong. I think their intention is to try and help, uh, and I'm going to use air quotes here, protect retail investors from things like leverage and inverse ETFs. But as I know you know, the concern down at the conference was, well, what exactly constitutes a complex ETF, right? Is it anything besides plain vanilla Vanguard and, and iShares ETFs? What exactly does, does complex mean? And then, of course, assuming you can even define that, how do you then go about administering a fair test to investors? And should brokerages even be in the business of administering a test to investors? Uh, so, look, I, I know a lot has been made about how this could negatively impact ETF issuers, right? It, it's effectively gating products, making distribution more difficult than it already is. But I know that you have some specific concerns from an investor standpoint. So let, let's start there and feel free to add my uh, crude description of this proposal. You, you're absolutely the regulatory expert here. But why does this concern you from an investor standpoint? Well, sure. I mean, you, you got the broad strokes of it, right? So uh, taking a close look at the proposal, FINRA is asking for comments along two main tracks, right? So all the attention is on the complex product side, but there's also, uh, a, they're, they're seeking comment about options trading and whether there should be more uh, regulation and, and gating around the option, the practice of options trading by retail investors too. That's also concerning. So in this uh, proposal they or guidance they, they set out for FINRA members, they say, you know, you have to um, remember your responsibilities as a FINRA member to uh, you know, protect investors and so on. It's all, all very, you know, sounds very good, right? But as part of this proposal, they're asking for comment about roughly three dozen fairly leading questions about how members, like you said, should confirm. Uh, define products as complex, whether FINRA should be implementing special regulations around their use, should there be more supervision, and so on. And like I said, same thing with options trading, should there be more rules around you know, who can use these and so on. So the complicating factor, as you said, there's no standard definition for complex product. Right now, it's sort of like obscenity, right? You're, you're supposed to know it when you see it. But that's not a very clear working definition. So FINRA wants to define complex products. And the way they've done that, the net their proposal is casting is extending so far and wide that pretty much every ETF that isn't a pure market beta indexed product would potentially fall into this net. So there's a lot of uh, attention being given to leveraged and inverse products, but Things like commodities, futures-based products would fall into this net. ETNs, defined outcome, global real estate ETFs, all of those could potentially fall into the definition of complex products. And it's not just ETFs either. Structured notes, mutual funds, other products that use these things, they could potentially be complex products as well. So the the I think the key here is that FINRA is asking uh, if in investors should have to prove to FINRA that they understand the risks before investing. So it's not just 
that retail investors should be told, consult your financial advisor or read the prospectus. No, they now have to prove to FINRA that they understand the risks in investing in these products. And the form in which that proof takes is still up in the air, but it could, like you say, uh, your brokerage firm could now potentially require an annual test for you to unlock the ability to invest in leveraged products, or you might have to have some uh, high net worth AUM threshold in your account to be able to access these products. And I think this is where the proposal goes too far, right? FINRA's jurisdiction isn't over retail investors. So why should retail investors be forced to get special approval from FINRA members to do what they want with their own money? You know, why should I, as a investor, have to take a test to prove that I understand these risks? Um, And it would be, if this proposal were to come to fruition, it would be the first time in my memory that a regulator ever told members of the public, hey, you know, the security that's being published, uh, that's being traded on a public securities exchange. Yeah, actually, that's off limits to you. So sorry. Like, I don't think that's okay. And then just one last final point about it. I don't think FINRA has even laid out enough of an argument that there's something broken in the way that the process currently works, right? So if you look at leveraged and inverse products, most brokerage platforms like TD Ameritrade and E-Trade and whatever, They already have disclosures on their platforms about these products that investors are required to check the little box and say they understand, they're aware of the risks. Those risks are also outlaid in the prospectus. They're on ETF websites. You go to any leveraged and inverse products issuer, it's like right there in big, bold letters. These are the risks. And now investors are also going to have to take a test to prove or get special clearance Uh, to prove that they understand the risks. I I mean, at some point, this just becomes burdensome on the investor for the sake of being burdensome. And I think this is a solution in search of a problem. So that was Laura Krigger, editor-in-chief at Vetify. And I think you can hear there, we're both a bit dumbfounded by this proposal. It just seems like such regulatory overreach. Because if you play this out, you have to ask the question of, well, where does this all end? Right? Are we going to start quizzing investors on active versus passive funds and investment fees and, and everything else? At some point, investors have to take some responsibility to understand what they're putting their money into. Uh, but <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. I'm not going to get on a, a soapbox on this best of podcast. But again, certainly another uh, ETF story to watch moving forward. All right, next I want to play two quick snippets from conversations I had regarding the expiration of Vanguard's share class patent next year. And I know this may seem wonky to some people, but I think this is something to keep an eye on. I'm very interested to see if other fund companies try using this uh, structure, which currently allows Vanguard to offer ETFs as a share class of their mutual funds, which that can offer some potential benefits though it also has some potential downsides as well. And it's apparently those downsides that are now on the SEC's radar. So first up, I was joined by Vanguard's Rich Powers, who confirmed the status of uh, this patent, and then he talked about what he sees happening next. So you, you may or may not know this, but one of my 2022 ETF predictions is that the Vanguard share class patent will become a hot topic of conversation. 
So I, I, I could be wrong here, Rich, as I understand it, that patent expires in 2023. Now, I know that you're not on the legal side of things. You're not a Vanguard attorney. Uh, but are you able to speak at all to what happens next year? Like, can anyone pursue this structure once the patent is up? Is this something that's on your radar? Uh, is there more to all this than, than what I'm stating here? Yeah, Nate, your facts are correct. Our patent expires in 2023. And so at that point, uh, any other asset management firms could uh, pursue uh, a multi-share class ETF offering. Uh, they, they can pursue it, but they'll be pursuing it with the SEC through the exemptive release process, right? So take you back a couple of years, the SEC went through a, a pretty ar arduous effort with the industry to create a little bit more clarity and uh, straight through processing with respect to how products are launched and, and brought to marketplace. And they created what's called the ETF rule, which effectively says, here's an easy pathway for you to bring products to market versus historically what they've done, which is every product that ever came to market got individualized exemptive relief. That could be painful, many years in the making. And so uh, other firms who now will have access to considering launching multi-share plus ETFs will not be able to use that easy pass. They'll need to go through the exemptive relief process and engage with the SEC. In the end, uh, you know, no impact to Vanguard. Our, our, the benefits we've got from launching multi-share class ETFs They'll call it 70 of our products, um, accrue early on in those products lifecycle where we're able to launch them with diversified portfolios, low cost tracking really early on. But over time, uh, those benefits uh, diminish and kind of equalize over time. And so, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see what other firms kind of consider this, but uh, it's not a slam dunk in terms of how they have to go through the regulatory process to, to bring uh, any products they might want to to market. So that was Rich Powers, head of ETF and index product management at Vanguard. And you can hear him alluding to the challenges other fund companies may face in getting approval from the uh, SEC to use this share class structure. He, he just said it, it's no slam dunk. And so a few months later, I was joined by BNY Mellon's Ben Slavin, who, if you know Ben, I, I mean, few people have the ETF experience and background he does. And we got into this uh, Vanguard patent situation in a bit more detail. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware, one of my 2022 ETF predictions was that this would become a hot topic. And so you and I are going to help my prediction along here. Uh, but I think most listeners are aware that Vanguard has a patent that allows them to offer ETFs as a share class of their mutual funds. And this can offer uh, several potential benefits, which we can certainly discuss. But this patent is up next year which that means any fund company could attempt to pursue this. So I, I guess a couple of questions for you. Number one, are you hearing more about this from ETF issuers, like issuers who are interested in using this approach? And then two, how do you think this is going to play out? Because I'm not sure if you saw this last week, but the Financial Times had a piece where they said the SEC might actually have some concerns around this structure, uh, that, that it might not you know, exactly be easy for a fund company if they do want to pursue this, because the SEC may uh, put up a few roadblocks. So, so what are you hearing on this topic overall right now? Well, well, Nate, your prediction is is right. It's the volume of chatter on this topic has definitely increased. Um, it's, it's fascinating to watch. Um, and we've been engaged with many of our clients on this topic. My, my opinion or belief is that we do expect a firm to attempt this structure next year once the Vanguard patent expires, but I do not expect this to be widespread. We'll probably see more Bitcoin ETF filings um, still pending um, versus these uh, filings for, for share classes. 
But really, once this patent expires, other firms will no longer need to deal with Vanguard, but they will need to deal with the SEC. And that's where the concerns lie at this stage. So the issue was always less about the patent and more about the appetite for the regulators to approve more products using this approach. And and I think really at this stage, you know, none of the the Vanguard um, actively managed funds hold an ETF share class. So to date, it's always been um, around the passively managed products. This would also limit, uh, you know, the potential use case for it uh, to start. But also there are some regulatory issues that, that do remain. But it's clearly an attractive um, potential option, and I think that will not stop a few from trying it. But ultimately, the SEC is going to have to approve these. But from an infrastructure perspective, it absolutely works. I mean, we have experience with this in the U.S., but also um, similar multi-class structures in Europe that, that we provide the infrastructure for. So it's quite straightforward, and the road is, is reasonably well-traveled there. Um, but, but again, some of the regulatory issues uh, you know, still remain, and, and I think it's going to be a while before um, those are fully worked through and, and the SEC is satisfied to, to allow someone else to come to market behind Vanguard again once that patent expires. Yeah, the SEC angle is really interesting to me, and in that a Financial Times piece I, I mentioned, they quoted an attorney who said that the entire barrier to entry here was the SEC staff and that they have concerns around uh, what, what they call class subsidization. And really what that boils down to is that, you know, is this structure in the best interest of investors? So, in in other words, could the activities within the mutual fund share class negatively impact the ETF share class, as an example? So trading costs, taxes, those sorts of things. So I I just that's interesting. I don't know a lot of people have uh, have been talking about that. And it does seem like the SEC is going to be the gatekeeper here. That was Ben Slavin, global head of ETFs, asset servicing at BNY Mellon who I thought offered a unique perspective on the Vanguard patent. Uh, Clearly, he thinks at least some fund companies are are going to pursue this next year. I just can't wait to see how this all plays out with the uh, SEC. And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest. iShares sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. All right. You heard Ben mention Bitcoin ETF filings in that last conversation. And of course, no best of ETF prime is complete without some Bitcoin ETF talk. And so the last conversation I have for you is with Grayscale's Dave Lavelle. Uh, of course, Grayscale has a, a spot Bitcoin ETF filing. They're attempting to convert their Grayscale Bitcoin trust into an ETF. And as part of that, They've been assisting the public with getting comment letters to the SEC. I I think they're up to something like over 3,000 public comments now. It it might be more than that at this point. I've said before, I feel bad for the the SEC staffers who have to handle all of these. But we start here by discussing that public commenting process, and then we get into where a spot Bitcoin ETF currently stands. 
Well, let me ask you this. Do you like can I actually move the needle at all by submitting a letter and, and publicly commenting on your spot Bitcoin ETF filing? Like, does that matter, these public comments that are coming in? A thousand percent. Absolutely. And you know, look, everyone's gonna come with their own, you know, kind of information, their own perspective. Certainly investors have had one experience. Um, but like, you know, industry you know, industry executives and industry experts are certainly gonna come with another you know, set of perspectives. And absolutely. I mean, look, as part of the statutory process, I mean, you know, this 19 before filing process and a 240 day waiting period and, you know, which is set to expire in early July, July 6th. Um, you know, the SEC has to pay attention to those to those comment letters and has to address what has been brought up in those comment letters. And so absolutely, uh, your listeners, you um, individual investors, institutions, um, you know, absolutely, they, they make a difference. Okay, so a lot we're going to cover today, but while we're on this topic, let's just stick with the, the spot Bitcoin ETF situation. I know that's what everyone wants to hear about. And just up front, as always with these conversations, obviously, Dave, you get a free pass on any question. I know there are certain areas you just can't venture into from both a legal and regulatory standpoint, but I still may try asking you, so we'll see how that goes. But but first, you do have this live filing with the SEC for a spot Bitcoin ETF. Right. What can you tell us about the status of that and, and, and what kind of clock is the SEC on right now? Right, right. So I think um, essentially there's two different paths that ETFs come, come to life. Um, those that are more kind of generic and therefore meet the generic listing standards, or as many of your listeners would know, the under the ETF rule or 6C11, so 75-day waiting period and the products become immediately effective after expiring that 75-day clock. Th- this is different, right? This is a more novel exposure. Uh, it does not meet the ETF rule. And, um, you know, so so just like any other novel product that has come to market, it goes through a more rigorous filing product pro- process and a more rigorous, um, you know, review process by the SEC, and, and ultimately is on the 240-day clock, um, of which we're in the middle of, and that 240-day clock is set to expire on July 6th. Obviously, the intention is to convert the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust (GBTC) into an ETF. Without getting into all of the mechanics here, I know this can get a little bit wonky. How would this process go? Like, if the SEC approves your filing, right. then, then does GBDC simply move to trading on the New York Stock Exchange and authorized yeah. participants can start creating and redeeming shares? What's the actual process? Come on, Nate. You've got an ETF geek on the line. I like to get <laughs> nitty gritty. <laughs> Come on. Um, it's unfair to tell me to simplify. No, no. All joking aside, um, I think there's, like, really three really critical things um, that, that I would highlight. Number one, investors don't have to do anything. That's the first most important, uh, first and most important component to this. Um, you know, the two things that ultimately happen is that the product will be uplisted from the OTC markets to the New York Stock Exchange. Um, and second is that, you know, pretty much we flip the switch and then there are simultaneous creations and redemptions. Um, which are obviously the cornerstone of the ETF product. And what's most important about the allowance of and the permission of simultaneous creations and redemptions is that that will absolutely uh, collapse any deviation that exists between where the product is trading in the market throughout the course of the day and what the product's 
net asset value or intrinsic value is. And so there's been plenty of conversation around GBTC trading at a discount currently. And there was conversation around GBTC historically trading at a premium. Those deviations from its intrinsic value will uh, ultimately be erased um, because the simultaneous creation redemption, which again is the cornerstone of the ETF, will allow for you know the product to be to be trading in line with its actual value. Dave, on that last point, so sure. again, GBTC, this is a private trust that trades over the counter, currently nearly thirty billion in assets. But this has gone from trading at uh, 30 to 35 percent premium in January of last year to now about a 25 percent discount. And so the end result is that even though Bitcoin is up around 45 percent over this time period, an investor in GBTC would actually be down close to 10 percent. I'm just curious. I mean, you explain well, you, you know, some of the mechanics there. But what do you think has actually driven the discount is it that there are now futures-based Bitcoin ETFs available and Canadian spot Bitcoin ETFs? Is it these other products that have sort of reduced demand for GBTC shares, or are there other factors? Yeah, so obviously the um, the, the reality is, and although the product is not a closed-end fund, um, it behaves like a closed-end fund in the sense that. You know, shares can be created, but they can't be redeemed right now. We're not permitted to, to do that. And so, therefore, the fixed nature of the shares that are outstanding allow the kind of, you know, principles of supply and demand of the market or, you know, more broadly, the, the market dynamics to really drive the secondary market pricing of the product. And so where it's actually trading, the price that it's trading over the counter. And so, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, some of those market dynamics have to do with look in January of last year what were you know what what were the opportunities or what was um, you know available to investors to get actual you know spot Bitcoin exposure they were certainly more limited than they they are today um, and so there are you know different um, you know essentially different exposures and different exposure opportunities and frankly the investors conviction has changed um, you know from January of last year to this year. So that change in kind of conviction around the broader asset class is certainly a component to the market dynamic. But frankly, um, you know, for me, it, it, you know, if you believe long term in the asset and you believe that we are going to achieve um, this approval, it's a tremendous buying opportunity. Um, look, I traded closed end funds for a very long time in my career um, and, you know, paying close attention to, you know, ranges of discounts. Um, in closed-end funds can be a really compelling trading uh, trading strategy. And so, look, uh, you know, I view it as a buying opportunity. The discount, I think, gets us into a really interesting area. And I, I don't know how much you can speak to this, but I'll, I'll set the table like this. So I know your head of legal, Craig Psalm, he said the current Bitcoin ETF landscape is, quote, unfair and discriminatory against GBTC shareholders. And... Look, we don't know when the SEC is going to finally get comfortable with a spot Bitcoin ETF, but right. I know I know Grayscale is not just sitting back here. And you actually ha had your attorneys send the SEC a letter at the end of November arguing that the SEC's approval of Bitcoin futures ETFs, which I do have a question for you on those, but your attorneys argued that the SEC approving futures-based Bitcoin ETFs and not spot-based Bitcoin ETFs right. is, quote, arbitrary and capricious in, in violation of what's called the Administrative Procedure Act, the APA, 
Right. Now, again, I realize you may have to tread carefully on, on some of this legal stuff, but can you tell us anything about that approach yeah. and, and maybe offer some additional color here? Yeah, listen, for, for, first and foremost, we, we have long been advocating for our investors, and we take that very seriously. Um, you know, prior to this open comment period, we we took that burden on our on our own shoulders, right? And and we were engaging with the SEC, engaging with you know members of the Hill um, and members of Congress down on Capitol Hill, and really spending a bunch of time ensuring that we were delivering what we were hearing directly from our investors, right? Over six hundred thousand investors. Now that the open comment period um, is here, we actually have the opportunity to let you know all of our investors say, hey you have a chance to utilize your own voice now, which is something that we're really excited about. And I think it, you know, that would make sense to you and make sense to, to, to the investors at large. As it pertains to um, one particular comment letter that you're referencing, and again, arbitrary and capricious are, uh, I'm not an attorney, but those are very important words when you're thinking through a potential APA violation argument. Um, you know, the reality is, is that I know it sounds a little bit outrageous to think about you know, a lawsuit against your regulator. Um, but the truth is this happens, and there are rules of engagement, and uh, the SEC has to follow those rules. And, you know, those rules of engagement, if, if, if one particular product or one particular filing or one particular issuer, right, is being treated differently than another particular filing or another particular product or another different, you know, particular issuer, um, then that's in violation. And, you know, this is, um, you know, this is an important thing that we're focused on. And, I mean, in the simplest way to put it, Nate, if, if, if the SEC is comfortable with futures-based ETFs, right, futures-based Bitcoin ETF, and the futures market is inherently and inextricably related to the underlying Bitcoin market, and, you know, the index that the futures are based on and the index that our product is based on are largely, right, um, the vast majority uh, of overlap, um, then we believe that there's an opportunity to, you know, essentially say to the SEC, look, um, we're being treated unfairly. You know, I, I, I have no desire um, to, you know, to, to get in a lawsuit with our regulator. We certainly want to work constructively. We certainly have appreciated the um, level of constructive engagement that we've had for, for years with the SEC. And, you know, we also appreciate that they have a very difficult job to do. But all things considered, we want to be treated fairly. Um, we think that we have an opportunity here um, to really bring to market something that investors want um, in a market that has matured considerably since this conversation started. And, you know, look, we remain really optimistic that the SEC is going to get to a good place on this and investors are also going to get what they want. I think listeners know exactly where I stand on this, but I'll just reiterate a, a couple of your points. You know, the biggest issue in my mind is that the SEC keeps citing this potential for fraud and manipulation in the underlying spot market. Right. But to what you were saying, futures-based ETFs get their pricing from that exact same market. It's the same exchanges that a spot Bitcoin ETF would use to price. It's just mind-boggling to me. The other thing that I'll, I'll mention here is the SEC is saying that the CME Bitcoin futures market is not of significant size. But yet again, they approved 
Bitcoin futures ETFs based on those same CME traded futures. Those two points in particular are are where I, I get tripped up on this whole thing. It just doesn't make sense to me. We could head down a, a rabbit hole and talk about the 40 Act and the 33 Act wrapper. To me, it doesn't matter because if the SEC is saying their concern is, is over fraud and manipulation in the underlying market, then we need to come back and, and talk about, again, how are Bitcoin futures priced and how would a spot Bitcoin uh, ETF be priced. But uh, I, I digress. Let me ask you this. So there are currently Nate, three. Nate, Go Nate, ahead. I'm yeah. I'm going to cut you off for a second. It sounds like you got a couple of good points for our comment letter, my friend. <laughs> I, I, I think I'm going to have to pen something. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm getting pushed into the corner here. So that was some of my conversation with Dave Lavelle, global head of uh, ETFs at Grayscale Investments. And we'll know here in about a month what the SEC is going to do with this Grayscale Bitcoin ETF filing. I'm absolutely not holding my breath, but we may see a few fireworks if Grayscale does follow through with a, a, a lawsuit. Certainly yet another story to watch in the second half of the year. That'll do it for this week's Best of ETF Prime. I want to take this opportunity to thank you for listening. Really appreciate everyone's support of this podcast. I love doing it every week. I hope you feel like you get something out of it every week as well. But sincerely, thank you for listening. Next week, I'll be right back here in studio. I'll be recapping the Insight ETFs conference from Florida. So hope you'll join me for that. Until then, have a great week, everyone.